Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. Let me invite you to open up your Bible with me to the book of Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You're more than invited to grab one of those and journey with us to Genesis chapter 2. Right at the beginning of the Bible, flip to the first page. You'll have a table of contents, some other stuff. Pretty quickly you'll get there. Genesis chapter 2, just the second chapter in the first book of our 66-book library that we call the Bible. If you are um, with us for the first time or with us for the first time in a couple of weeks, Two weeks ago, we started a series on the early stories, the early chapters in the book of Genesis. And Michelle um, gave us a sermon on Genesis 1 and the seven-day creation period there. And then last week, we dug in a little bit more on day six and what it means that human beings, male and female, were created to be image bearers. We were created to be um, people who, who bear the image of God. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to continue to work through this and, and look at the story that we have uh, here in Genesis chapter So if you'll pick up with me, Genesis 2, um, the first creation story, as it's it's considered, actually ends inside of chapter 2. So if we read verse 3, we find the ending here. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So this kind of completes the seven-day story that began first in Genesis 1-1. Now we pick up in verse 4, a new narrative, a new story. These were the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And that day, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground." And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first one is Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, but Delium and Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. We won't focus so much on these rivers. I know we've got a lot of river fans here uh, in the ancient world this morning, but we're not going to dig too deep into that. Verse 15, though, we get a very important passage. The Lord God took the man... And put him in the Garden of Eden, and watch this phrase, we'll come back to it, to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. 
But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he then made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and we're not ashamed. This is the story of Genesis 2. We have here, just like Genesis 1, and just like next week in Genesis 3, a very, very, very ancient Eastern story full of theological poetry and art, symbolism and meaning about the world that we live in and our identity and role in that world. Now, the first kind of question we have to ask ourselves is how Genesis 2, how this, this story plays in with the first one we've gotten. There are a couple of different ways to see it. So there are some people who think this is a, a separate creation story altogether. And at some point when the book of Genesis was being put together, both of these creation stories just kind of got stacked one beside another, and they both have different points and truths to illustrate to us. This would explain why the order is out of place. Right? Different things are created in different ways, in different orders, in the Genesis 1 account versus the Genesis 2 account. Other people, this is one of the more popular ways to read Genesis 2, think Genesis 2 is like a flashback. Think of like a good TV show. It gets a little dreamy-like. And all of a sudden now we've like zoomed in on day six when mankind was created. And we're getting like an up-close, personal look at the creation of man. You know, Genesis 1 is very cosmic. It's very big picture of the entire universe. Genesis 2, God is, is, is getting his hands dirty. He's, he's in the mud. He's putting his breath into man. He's performing some surgery. I think for a handful of reasons, the best way to really read the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, these two different narratives, is to see Genesis 2 as a sequel. Um, I think there's linguistic markers, the way that the text is formed. Um, the, elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, this would Tell us this story came after this story. And this solves a lot of the inherent problems that you might find in these two texts. Um, for instance, when we're talking about there's no trees or plants, notice it's qualified in this land, on this field. Um, and then we, we kind of locate ourselves in the east in a specific place called the garden. And there we see God doing something with humanity. I think what happens in Genesis 2 is we go from this cosmic look to a specific place on this cosmos on this earth, and we see God moving and acting in this specific place. And like Genesis 1, I think this story tells us a whole lot about what it means to be a human being, about what it means to live in this planet that we call earth, in this world that we, we understand to be a universe. And like Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is full of obstacles for us to get off track. It's full of phrases and stories and bits to the story we might focus our attention and come to perhaps the wrong conclusion than the text is trying to get us to. So we talked about how in Genesis 1, and, and both of these past sermons are up on the podcast or on the, the website if you listen to, um, how Genesis 1 is not really a story about the scientific origins of the world. It's not trying to give you some very detailed physicist account of how material came into being and how it was organized and ordered but it's instead a story about God and his creation and the, the role of God and the role of his creation. I think this is true for Genesis 2 as well. Now, the biggest detour you'll see people take in Genesis 2 typically comes with the woman. And what happens is 
this story gets kind of broken down and some bits get pulled out of context. And all of a sudden now we have in Genesis 2 a story that forms the foundation of gender identity and gender roles. And it's been used throughout history, sometimes in destructive ways, to belittle women or to exclude them in certain ways. And I think that to look at the story and to try to come to that conclusion completely misses the point of Genesis 2. It completely misses what the Spirit is actually trying to tell us in Genesis chapter 2. And there's even clues, I think, in the story that, that kind of alert us to the fact that this is not really what's happening here. Um, notice that in verse 18, the Lord God is looking out at the garden. He says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper for him. This phrase, it is not good, it should echo to you the phrase we saw in Genesis 1 over and over and over again. God creates, he steps back, looks at it and says, it was good. It was good. It's good. It's good. Humankind comes around. It's very good. And now God looks out and he says, something's not good about this. The human being needs a companion. It needs a community. It needs diversity. It needs someone to walk alongside it. And so he sets out to create what we have translated in our English Bibles as a helper. This is a clue into the, the truth that creation, even in the Genesis stories, was never about something being created perfectly or statically. Like creation's not a statue, right, that you just create and then walk away from because it needs no work. It has no story or process. Creation always had a future to it. It was always going to involve God working with it, molding it, directing it towards its intended purpose. And God looks out and goes, okay, the story's not over. I've ordered the world. I've planted this garden, put a human being in there, and now I'm finding a gap, and we'll have to take care of that gap. He sees a need for a companionship, and then we're told he brings all the animals in front of Adam, in front of this human being. This is another clue that the story is not really about a 24-hour period. If this was day six and we're trying to understand, like, okay, how can we calculate how old the, the earth is or how old the universe is? Even an ancient, 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 ancient Israelite would have understood that you probably cannot name and classify every single type of animal that exists on the earth in 24 hours. I don't know how productive you are during a day, but I am not at that level. Something bigger and larger is going on. It seems like God brings the animals in front of this, this human in order to see if a rightful companion, a helper, might be found among the animal kingdom, the other living creatures. And I would love to, to imagine what this, this human was thinking. Right? Like, was he looking at the horse and like, okay, maybe. And then he sees like, uh, like a, a bug or a mosquito, and he's like, definitely not. I mean, what are the gradations here about what might count and what might not count? But ultimately, he gets through all of the animals, and, and not a, a, a suitable companion is found. And so God starts to go into this transformative, creative process, whereby we end up with what's termed a man and a woman. In Hebrew, is the same word for a wife and a husband. Before this, every time you see man, we translate it as man, but it really means human, humanity. And there's kind of some plural to the way the Hebrew itself is constructed. So, so even though we use the male pronouns, God created the man, breathed his breath into the man, talk about it like he, I don't really think we have a good reason to understand this as like a male called Adam until there's two. 
And then we do have a man and a woman. And the woman is a suitable companion to the man. Now, what people have done is they've come and they've said, okay, the woman gets taken from the rib of Adam. She's created second. She's considered the helper. And therefore, she has an important but lesser role in the world. She's like the assistant to males. Males had this great, awesome task to get done, and they needed some worker bees. And so God created females for them. And we might laugh or joke, but this, this story has actually been used for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to say that women can't do certain things in the home and that women can't or shouldn't do certain things at work and, and women can't or shouldn't do certain things at the church. I just want to suggest this is not the point of Genesis 2. It's not trying to give you a, a philosophical foundation for how you understand genders and the different gender roles and identities. It's important and complex, but it's not the point of Genesis 2. And I want to just show you that that's not the point by making the opposite argument. So very quickly, I want to show you why you could read Genesis 2 to actually say that women are on top of men. That there's a matriarchy being described here before sin enters into the world. Now, I'll say this. I don't really read the text this way. I just want to illustrate to you that you can take a cultural idea, and if you're flexible enough, creative enough, smart enough, you can make an old, old text do whatever work you want it to do for you. So first, let's look at this word helper, right? The woman's called helper. Well, English, or English translation, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, particularly in these ancient stories, often doesn't do us very well. Helper is sometimes a derogatory term. You can think of like a little assistant, um, someone who's not in charge primarily. Everywhere else, almost, that you find this same word, helper, in the Old Testament, it refers to God himself. The early Christians, when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek Old Testament, which they used as their Old Testament, they translated it into the one who comes to give aid to those who cry for help. Whatever this word connotates in Hebrew, whatever meaning it gives off, whatever it throws out at you, it's not one of weakness and secondary importance. It's one of dignity and honor and power and importance. If anything, this story actually is making the point that man is dependent on woman, not the other way around. Right? With just man, it's not good. But then he gets a helper, someone who will come to his aid, someone who will actually make this thing work, and now all of a sudden we're ready to rock and roll. We get the story about Adam going into the deep sleep and a rib being taken from his side. The Hebrew word there for rib, your English Bibles will never once again translate that same word as rib. They throw that meaning out the window after Genesis 2. And almost everywhere else you see it, it's translated as side, a side of a building, side of the temple, one side versus the other side, a hillside one side of a hill. This seems to be its intended meaning. What we should think of in this transformative process is probably less like a really careful surgical procedure where one rib is removed and then somehow fashioned into another human. We should think of it as a side, one, one half of humanity. In this deep sleep, maybe it's not actually like real surgery. Like if we had a video camera, we could actually watch God cut a person in half, and then all of a sudden now you have two people, like a cell going through mitosis, and it just divides, and now this new thing is there. This word is often used in the Old Testament to describe a vision. 
describe God putting a human being into a, a state where their perception of what's around them is decreased so that they can focus on what God wants to reveal to them. It's very possible this is the vision. And, and we know, really, this is not a rib just being taken out because he then writes some poetry about the woman. Men have a tendency to do this, to see a, a woman. They go, I'm going to write a song. And we get our first speech from human beings. We get our first poem, song here. And he says, what? This is the bone of my bone. Is he in there? It's my rib. Pretty cool. <laughs> no, the bone of my bone and what? The flesh of my flesh. The point of the story is not that there's somehow some inferiority between these two different types of human beings. It's that they're equal in a way that the human being was not with all the animals. It's saying, no, you needed companionship. You need someone to help you, and it needs to be on the same playing field as opposed to all these animals. This person, whoever she is, is just like you are. The same bones, the same flesh. This is your equal. This is someone who can make these things right. You'll see at the very end of this story, in what we consider to be a statement about marriage, man is called to leave his family and go towards the woman and become one. Notice the direction there. That's not what you'd expect in an ancient world. If this was somehow a story about putting women in the rightful place in the world. You expect the woman to leave. Go be with the man. This is just not the, the indications that we're getting here. Notice that the, the culture, the duty of the garden, which we'll get more into, is, is gardening, keeping, working the garden. In the ancient world, this would have been considered womanly duties, as opposed to more manly duties like fighting or hunting. The whole culture of the garden seems to be more geared, if anything, if we're going to pick one side or the other, towards women. There's even a way to read Genesis 3 in which this comes through. Typically, we understand the serpent, which we'll talk about next week, coming to Eve and tempting her as like the serpent finding the weak link, right? Like, okay, I'm going to separate, divide. Who should I go to? Obviously, the woman. What if he goes to the woman because it's only natural that she's the decision maker? She's the one in charge. She's the one kind of running this, this garden. I say all this to, to try to get your mind a little limber, right? And to say that some of our cultural patterns we put into old texts don't always fit quite as like, uh, neatly as we, we'd like them to. I still think Genesis 2 has something very profound to say to us about our world and about our place in the world, but I don't think it's found necessarily in trying to discern the DNA material origins of humanity or the historical origins of genders and gender roles. I think it's found in the garden and in the task given to these living human beings. Which brings us back to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is another way of being told what the vocation of humanity is, what our job is in creation. In Genesis 1, we're told to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it, to be fruitful and multiply. Here we're put in a garden and we're told, keep it and work it. Now, these two verbs, keep and work, they can be used to describe gardening agricultural skills. I'm not much of a green thumb myself. I'm not sure what those skills might be. Some watering, 
some imagining, some pruning, some planting. Beyond that, I'm out of my expertise here. It, but it definitely can connotate gardening, and there's definitely something profound here in this text about this fact. Human beings were created to do something with their lives. Human beings were put in creation to do something with and in creation, to contribute somehow, to find meaning and identity and their role inside of this larger thing that God has created. This is why when you take this away from a human, whether through a job loss or a disability, something like that, if you take away their ability to contribute in some way to society, what you find is that their sense of purpose and meaning quickly collapses. And with that come a lot of negative side effects. Because human beings were never meant to just lounge around. Human beings were never meant to just sit by and enjoy the show. Human beings were created to be motivated, to accomplish something, to figure something out and to do it. This is one of the things we're going through as a nation right now. So if you're newer to the church, um, one of the things you'll come to realize is around uh, Independence Day, we will never really celebrate the birth of America. And it's not because I think patriotism is bad or anything like that. It's just I think there are better places to do patriotism. The church is about something bigger than one nation or one temporary phase in history. The church is multinational, and so I'd never want to do something at the church that would make someone from a different nation feel uncomfortable or anything like that. But in our particular nation, in our body politic right now, there's a lot of strife and conflict, and one of the big reasons because of it, uh, or for it, is that some people's jobs have been taken from them. Um, in the manufacturing world, we've seen automation take over very stable jobs of the past. And you go to these communities, in swing states, <laughs> you, you go to these communities, and what you find is these are the people hit by drug addictions. These are the people hit by the breakdown of relationships. These are the places where people who once found their meaning and purpose in the world by doing this or that, now that that's taken away from them, have a very hard time coping. And if no one pays attention, no one seeks to provide help, these are people who, who are going to want to change. These are people who are going to be more likely to incite some of the more negative characteristics of humanity. Interestingly enough, we know that women handle this better than men. When a man loses his job, sense of vocation, just, just watching human beings, we know they're more likely to develop antisocial behavior. They're more likely to withdraw from the world around them. They're more likely to develop addictions and self-destructive behavior. They're less likely to volunteer or contribute to their community, even though they now have more time. Women, while it's not easy for women by any means, right, but women tend to just handle it better. They are more likely to reinvest in their education, to pursue other opportunities. They're more likely to volunteer more with their extra time. They're less likely to develop a, a substance abuse problem or to kind of get sucked in the world of computers or video games. There's something profound here, I think, to understand about the nature of humanity. We were created to do to accomplish, to participate in this rhythm of work and worship and rest and work and worship and rest. Now, these two terms can also mean something different that might help us, I think, illuminate this story. Keep it 
and work it, the way it's translated for us in the ESV here. When you find these two terms together and in this order throughout the Old Testament, almost every occasion you're going to find them in is a temple context. It's being used to describe the task of people at the temple, a place where the Israelites came to worship. And specifically, it's being used to describe the job description of the priest at the temple. And there's a real good reason for reading Adam and Eve here, male and woman, as being given priestly duties in creation. Because, as Michelle pointed out to us in the very first message in Genesis 1, the first Genesis story is a temple story. The number seven in the ancient world meant temple. The story of a seven-day creation period on the seventh day, a God resting. doesn't mean God takes a nap or goes away. It means God comes and dwells in his temple. The symbolism of gardens and flowing waters in the ancient Near Eastern world, guess what this was a symbol of? Temples. It was, a, it was a status marker to indicate to you this is a place that is sacred. This is a place where God dwells. This is a place where God's presence can be accessed and experienced, where one can benefit from his presence. We can actually go back to the first temple the Israelites ever built in Jerusalem, and, and what scholars will notice is it's built in so many ways to actually resemble creation. It's like a reproduction of the Garden of Eden, if you will. There are trees and animals, there's flowing water, there's pictures, paintings, decorations to, to invoke this imagery as well. I think Genesis 2 is trying to tell us a story about something that happens in a sacred place. So the whole world is built to be God's temple, to be a place where he can dwell with his people, he can be their God, they can be his people. And then in Genesis 2, we get zoomed in to a particular place in this temple where a garden is set up. If you're familiar with the Israelite temple system, this would be like the Holy of Holies, the most sacred of sacred spaces. God sets up shop here and vocations a, a human being and then a man and a woman to work it and to keep it. Genesis 2, then, is not a story necessarily about gender roles or about the material origins of humanity, as much as it's a story about a sacred task given to human beings as they inhabit a sacred space. Now, you and I sometimes have a hard time imagining that our world is a temple, that it could be a temple. Now, one of the reasons for this is just history. We're on the, this side of a thing called modernity or the Enlightenment philosophical, cultural revolution, the rise of scientific revolution, the, the elevation of reason. And one of the things that modernity has done to human beings is it's, scholars use this word, it's disenchanted the world. So believe it or not, you don't have to go back very far in history to find a time in which it's very unlikely for someone not to believe in God or a God or gods. It's just not really an option on their minds. And now you fast forward through into our time, and what? It's a very real possibility. It's a very equal kind of option among other options that one might believe or, or not believe. And scholars call this secularization. The world's been secularized. God, in some sense, has kind of been removed. And there are some good aspects, perhaps, to this, and some bad aspects to this, but I just want to notice the transformation. Just go back to the Middle Ages, right? And almost every human being alive believed that God is present and active 
that there are spirits, there are angels, there are demons, there are things that go bump in the night, there are things that inhabit the forest and the dark places. You don't have to go very far in human history to go to a time where something disappears in your house and you blame it on the goblin from the forest, not on your husband moving it for no reason and then forgetting where it was moved. It's normally the situation in our, in our house. But because of a lot of different factors, we've disenchanted the world, which means we're much more likely to experience something in our lives as kind of dead and without mystery and meaning and richness than we are as mysterious and rich, meaningful and related to God somehow. And one of the ways you can understand kind of the world becoming more secular is to see God kind of removed from different parts of life. And so maybe all you have left down is like religion. And so like in nature, God has kind of been taken out and we're much more likely now to just think of cause and effect, biological determinism. Then we are to think of God's involvement, God's activity, God causing or doing or, or producing certain things. When we go to our workplaces, when we go to our schools, right, we leave the spirits at the door. That's not how we naturally go to explain things. And there's even just this sense inside of humanity that gets this. And you can really understand this if you can put your mind back into the mind of someone like 500 years ago, when they would have really seen the world as filled with God and his activity when things would have been mysterious, a little bit wild, full of possible meaning and depth. And now we've kind of reduced it all to a math equation that we can perform or not perform. And we've made believing or not believing more rival ideas than experiences of the world, which perhaps they more rightly are. To believe is to experience the world as a world filled with God. To disbelieve is to experience the world as disinhabited, as empty of God and, and God's presence. The scriptures, though, say this about the world. It's a temple. At a temple, you expect God to be there. You expect God to be present. You expect God to be moving. And to whatever extent we've been trained out of this viewpoint, this worldview, historically, we need to do some retuning, some retraining. We need to convert our imaginations, make them a little bit wider and bigger. There are two options historically now that human beings as a whole have made this move. And most humans have, it's still centered in the West, there are still some societies where you can go and look and they've kind of been untouched and you can see this enchantment, right? You can see a world filled with spirits, a world full of the divine. For the most part, we've kind of sterilized creation, made it the subject of study and not awe and wonder. And this could be for one of two reasons. Either it was never true in the first place. It was just superstition and weird ideas that we came up to to explain things we couldn't otherwise explain. Or we're now convincing ourselves of something that's not fundamentally true. And if the second option was to be the case, if we're just pretending, you would expect to find this to pop out in unexpected places. To be able to experience something beyond themselves and beyond the world in places you would otherwise not expect it. So who here has been at bottom of a huge waterfall or at the Grand Canyon or on the beach or out in the country looking up at the stars. And it's had this kind of feeling overwhelmed them of transcendence, of more than themselves, of beauty and wonder and awe and worship. And you don't need to have a religion tell you how to feel this way. You don't need a religion to give you the words to define it and describe it. 
you still experience it. And in that moment, you go, there's more than me. There's more than this world. There's something beautiful about this. There's something majestic about this. There's something kind of wild about this. There's something kind of small about my place in this. And instead of it being a panicky feeling, it's a, it's a kind of a feeling of worship, of joy. Everyone's kind of nodding along. I think we all have plenty of stories like this. And where is it church? Is it after this incantation of a, of a priest? No, it's just out and about. Maybe at the hospital, a, a baby is born. And what should perhaps be the most sterile of environments, we get this sense of awe and wonder and majesty that, okay, this is more than just like a cellular accident. There's something at work here that's huge and creative and beautiful and powerful, and I want to tap into it and experience it and be transformed by it. To understand and view the world as temple, the world as garden, would require us to look for moments like that, to tap into moments like that. And now what would it mean for you and I as human beings if our task is a sacred one? If we're meant to do more than just actually garden the world, just actually input data into computers, just actually clean this up, move this around, but if we have some kind of a sacred task in a sacred space, what would it mean if humanity was put in creation to serve as priests, all of us. Not just those with the degree, degree not just those with a specific job, but, but every human being who has a breath. Well, we can think of it this way. Let's, let's imagine what the main duties were of a priest at a temple. I'll highlight just three for us this morning. The first would be to give instruction for people on how to handle and experience the sacred space. So you would instruct them on things like in the ancient world, purity and washings, moral living, ways that they might better interact with and live in and experience, be open to God's presence and activity. The second thing a priest was charged to do was to make sure to guard and protect that nothing would come into the temple that would compromise or corrupt it in any way. That would make it more difficult to see and experience and access God's presence and activity. And then the third task would be to mediate God's presence to other people. It would be to function as an in-between in a way that you'd be able to, in a sense, expand the sacred space, invite others to come and experience it, be transformed by it. Imagine if we took that kind of a view towards our own lives. I know we, a lot of us don't live near a garden. I know a lot of us have never thought of ourselves as priests before. Even to many of us, that word priest has a negative connotation. That's why you call me pastor, not priest. What if the more faithful way of viewing ourselves in this world is not as people who create, people who produce, people who make money, but as people who cultivate and guard and protect and mediate God's presence in this world? What would that mean for your role at home with your family? If your job was to give instruction on how to best experience God's presence, sacred space. If your job was to, to be sure that nothing would come in that would corrupt or compromise 
that experience, that the possibility. If your job was to mediate that, to play some kind of in-between role in which you were able to help others come into and experience the presence and love activity of God. What would that mean in your workplaces? Probably something different than in your homes. But surely that's a possibility there. I know many people here in the church who, who carry on a very priest-like role at their workplaces. They start these conversations. They're kind of constant bridges or tunnels into observation, thought, ideas about the divine. What would that mean in your neighborhoods, in your little leagues, at your community centers? For you to see your role as not a parent who will yell as loud as a can as the referee or umpire without getting kicked out. Instead, a person who's been put here in order to help other people acknowledge and experience the fact that this, even here, is sacred. That even here, God might be accessible to us. What would that mean in all the very different aspects that we have here in our life? We talked a little bit last week about that, what that would mean for creation itself, creation care, taking care of the world God has given us. But I think the interpersonal ramifications of this are, are just as important. What if your job as a parent was not just to protect and feed your kids, but to serve a holy role at the doorway of God's dwelling place and to, to, to help your children find their way into worship? What if your role was not just to make sure that they don't get any bad friends who convince them to like move to a different country and become a communist, but your role was to be on the watch for anything that might come in and, and restrict their ability to understand and worship and experience God? What if your role is not just to clean the house and to prepare dinner and to put the children to bed, but instead to come up with an environment, an atmosphere, a routine, a family routine, in which regularly God would be invited into your family's lives, their experiences. You'd regularly lead and model for your children what it would look like to pray and read scripture and to worship. I think this is a much more profound way of viewing our identities and our roles. I think it's a much more profound way of viewing the world itself. It's a way that involves us kind of turning up our imagination a little bit, kind of climbing out of some cultural barriers we've been placed in. So different philosophical movements, different ways of viewing and experiencing the world. And then like the man who's alone and it's no good yet, where could we find help to do that? Because like we discussed last week, no one can image God by themselves. It takes a community to bear God's image, the triune God's image, Father, Son, and Spirit, tripersonal. It takes more than one person to do this. What covenant relationships are we in right now that we might find support and encouragement and help in our tasks to be these very specific type of gardeners in the world? Our spouses, our, our family, our friends, or a small group that we're in or that's kind of organically been brought about around a specific activity or topic. In what ways could the church community, could our covenant community, be a resource to people? 
a way of helping them go out and live into a vocation of keeping and working the sacred garden. We find ourselves as a people who, as we'll read next week in Genesis 3, got kicked out of this garden. And the plants around us are often very withered and dry and die. Sometimes it's hard to convince a neighbor that there's actually breath and life and movement around here. But we are a people who not only know these stories, have access to them, and allow them to shape our worlds, we're people who have received the loving creator's embodied love and salvation in the son, Jesus, and his son, Jesus. We're people who have his spirit working in and through us that we might better be able to cultivate worship and faithfulness, a real dynamic, transformative relationship with the holy, with God. This is my challenge for us this week, is to try to reimagine ourselves and our world according to the narrative we're given in Genesis 2. This world is not just a sterile cause and effect place, but it's a world filled with God and his activity and his purposes and his designs. It's a world full of opportunities to worship, draw near to him, experience his life. And that we weren't put in it just that we might benefit from it ourselves, but we were put in it in order that we might cultivate it, keep it, prepare it, advance it, expand it to those around us. Like we do every week, we'll come to the table in just a moment. And at the table, we receive God's presence. We receive God's activity into our lives. We recognize and remember and celebrate that God gave his son that we might have life. And our task, I think, as we walk away from the table is to imagine and think through for ourselves what it might mean to then go out into our world and be a people who can bring that presence. We can do similar job of inviting people into the holy, into the divine, into the beautiful, into the transformative. And as we do that, I think we'll recover a sense of life that this man and this woman in this garden perhaps had that so often is taken away from us.